Hi, and welcome back to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 116, and today I have with me Marcus Hannon. Hey, Marcus, how are you doing? Hi, Laurent. Um, good, all good, thank you. We're lucky to be here, aren't we? <laughs> I think... Yeah, computers and uh, wonders of, of technology. So, look, I really appreciate you coming on board today to have a good chat with me. Um, and we're going to uh, talk about nutritional strategies to support young athletes. Um, and I'll explain why I wanted to get, that, get into that topic in a minute. But before I do, why don't you give us um, some background on who you are and where you're at and and what you're doing from a professional and from an academic perspective. Yeah, um, no problem. So uh, as you can tell from the accent, I'm originally from Belfast. So spent the first 18 years of my life um, in, in sunny Belfast. Um, and then I started my university um, in Oxford Brookes University. So I did a combined honours there in nutrition and sports science. And really, I suppose, developed a passion there um, for, for sport nutrition. Um, after that, I took a year out and, and, and did some voluntary S&C work with, with Ulster Rugby for a, for a year. And then I came back to uh, Liverpool John Murray's University to uh, study my Master's in Sport Nutrition with, with Graham and James there. Uh, and off the back of that, I, I had a fantastic opportunity um, to, to take up a PhD, an applied PhD, um, with Everton Football Club, working as a, as a practitioner there, but also collecting uh, my PhD data and doing the research there within the, the youth athletes there. So that's sort of coming to an end, that journey. I've been there almost three years now. Um, so, yeah, that's where I'm at. Time, time is flying and you're almost at crunch time, aren't you? Because you're, you're pretty much at the end of your PhD studies. Yeah. Is that correct? There, there, about yeah. So I've got uh, a couple of months of funding left, and um, the pressure's yeah. on. <laughs> pressure's, the pressure's getting there, yeah, and uh, it's, it's a right up stage now. So yeah, it's exciting. Well, be best of luck with that, and um, that is why I wanted to uh, talk to you today. Um, you, you know, over the over the past few years that I've been doing this podcast, and you know, in in my own readings around the various topics one thing is is clear is that the overwhelming focus as it relates to sport sport and exercise nutrition um science and related information um like exercise science exercise physiology and so on is very much adult focused but of course when we when we talk about athletes you know that that doesn't have a one-size-fits-all concept and we know that we explore that a lot in sports nutrition we're now talking about things like periodization of of, of nutrition um following on from you know the popularity of periodization in 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 sports science strength conditioning and so on um and we're now talking more about differentiating males from females uh particularly in an area which um i I know we're going to get into because I know you have some some expertise in this area too, where we're talking about things like energy availability um, yep. as it relates to um, males and females, which I've talked um, about uh, with uh, various people like James Morton, who's um, I think one of your supervisors. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Awesome. Lucky man. So, so, um, but 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 what people 
what, what we tend not to do is differentiate, um, you know, children from youths from, from adults. Um, but there is a tendency to apply the, the sort of the adult data, the, the adult approaches to, um, to youths. Um, and I know in my own work with youth football players, academy football players, but particularly academy rugby players at various teams that I've worked for, I also uh, was in charge of not, not just the, uh, the first team, but also the academy nutrition programs. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of differences, despite the fact some of these lads are huge. Um, but yeah. I, think, I think what's interesting here is, you know, and I've said this before on many episodes, that, that we use the term athlete, but we forget to use the word human being. They're not just athletes, they're also humans, and they have the needs, issues, problems, concerns, anxieties, uh, the nuances that goes with, you know, just being a human being and the individualities that go with that and religious preferences and so on. But of course, what's particularly interesting about youth, children, of course, but, but youth is that sort of rapid growth and development, which is in itself an impressive performance nutrition. The, the you know, the change from a child to an athlete is mind boggling. Um, so this is an area that I believe that you have spent some time looking at where you, where you've been looking at the nutritional needs and requirements of, of, of youths, um, who, who are athletes. So let, just so we can get on the same page with each other and also with, with the audience, I think it would be worth, um, contextualizing a few things for the discussion ahead because we've used, well, I've used a few, few terms here, um, where we talked about, um, youths and we use the term term athletes and things like growth and development and maturation perhaps you could set the scene here um, or take it in the direction you would like to start with before we maybe get more into the science yeah well I think you've hit the nail on the head there Lauren you know when sport nutrition started out it was you know let's look at adults and you know people that now are looking at the female athlete and different ages and it, it, you can't um, you can't just take the the, the requirements or, or the guidelines for adults and apply them to to the youth because because they're not just many adult athletes you know it's it's not just a case of them being smaller in size as you alluded to over the first you know two decades of life I suppose um, they undergo this this growth and maturation process towards the adult you know biologically mature state um, and and, and over those two decades, and, and particularly during the adolescent years, um, there's a number of anatomical um, changes and physiological changes, which, which has an influence on the metabolism you know, during exercise in particular. Um, and then that has knock-on uh, implications and repercussions for the, the guidelines and sport nutrition guidelines for them. You know, I, I guess you only need to look at... Um, Wimbledon earlier this month, where Coco Coco Goff, the fifteen-year-old, you know, taking down all the big names of tennis. Now she was fifteen years of age, but competing against top of the field. Um, you know, Tom Daly was fourteen when he was competing in the Olympics. Ian Thorpe was fourteen, you know, when he won his first world champ medal. So they are youth athletes um, competing against the at the highest echelons of sport. Um, so, so. Yeah, I mean, that, that's sort of um, why I think there's more and more research focus on that. You know, that, well, in football and sort of in my area, there's there's more and more money going into it. These, these kids are now investments for the clubs. 
and um, they're, they're bought and sold even from 12 years of age. So um, I think I think that's part of the reason why there, there's now a, an, an increase in research in this area. Well, also, I, do, I, I think it, it, I mean, you're absolutely right. I, I, I have a number of, um, in my private practice, a number of clients who are, are youth players. They happen to be, um, you know, the kids of professional football players, but they're, they're following in their parents' footpaths, you know, and they're only like 12, 13, 14 year olds. But yeah. clearly there, there isn't just a desire of, I want to be that football player. Um, there is an opportunity that goes back to an age where they are able to um, adapt, you know, their training, their skill sets, their mindsets to becoming what I have no doubt will be unbelievable athletes in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, as as we look at the available data, um, you know, we, I talk about a lot about the body of knowledge that exists on various topics. And if we're completely honest, the body of knowledge in sport and exercise nutrition is, is pretty scant. There's not a lot of it, um, partly because it's a relatively new field, but also, you know, when we relatively, when we compare it to the, the, the other fields like medicine and, and uh, nursing and those, you know, biology in those areas, it is a, a much smaller niche area, but maybe you could just help us look at relative to sports science um, and sports nutrition, the, the, you know, the, the, the amount of work, particularly the, 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 the applied work um, on youth athletes, you know, where does it fit on that spectrum? You know, how much is there? Uh... Uh, well, I, I guess it's, it's easier to get access in a way in some, in some sports to the academy players than say the senior players of particularly mm-hmm and different clubs so I mean there is research um, out there a lot of it is generally descriptive research there's in, in youth populations there's not a huge amount of um, mechanistic work um, there but I, I guess some of the early uh, you know physiology studies you know back in the 70s uh, Ben Saltina and Ericsson did some real nice um, you know mechanistic stuff looking at glycogen utilization and those kind of things using the muscle biopsy technique, but I guess that the invasiveness of, of those techniques, per, um, perhaps, you know, back in the 70s, they were allowed. I don't think nowadays a human ethics committee would allow those kind of studies to to, to happen, unfortunately. Very unlikely. <laughs> well, I guess that yeah. that um, has stopped some of that kind of work within, within youth. Um, I, I know when I went to the ethics board for, for my studies, the, the biggest concern was was around coercion of, of children into the into the research so I guess you know the the age that we're in these are these are things that ethics boards are considering and perhaps prevent us looking at, at certain things within the area of you know physiology metabolism and, and nutrition so well that actually that's one of the first things I wanted to get into a bit you know before we start looking at, at what we know and what you've been finding in your own research you know what you know, we're inevitably going to be looking at all of the information that exists out there, some of which we need to take from work that's been done on adults and, and at least try and adapt that and apply it to, to youth athletes, perhaps. But I mean, what are, the, what are the prime or the main limitations in working with athletes? You've already referenced a few things, but what are going to be the big issues in trying to study youth athletes and, and obtaining information to add to that body of knowledge I referred to? 
Uh, yeah, interesting question. I mean, uh, you. So I, I, I'll give an example from some from some of my research. Hmm. You know, uh, we're doing a longitudinal study looking at changes in, in anthropometry, CSI, DEXA, and um, changes in resting metabolic rate. You know, as they grow and develop through through the adolescent years. Now we we. We take that information every three to four months, every four months. So we do a start of season, um, August, uh, DEX and RMR, a Christmas assessment and, a, and an Easter assessment. Now we have, a, have 100 kids, 115 kids that I look after in the academy. Now, those kids aren't bringing themselves to the university. <laughs> so it's, it's parents. That has to be organized through parents. And that, I think when you're, when you're studying youth athletes the, the parental buy-in and understanding has to be there before you can you know get access even then to ask the kids are they happy enough to do it so um that's just one of the issues you face when, when you're researching this population yeah and we'll, we'll we'll later when we talk about you know the actual nutritional recommendations that are appropriate you know we this is a conversation that involves from a contextual point of view, more than just the youth athlete, because the youth athlete will not be operating on their own. So there's a lot yeah. of influences there. And you quite rightly said, you know, they don't, they don't come to the university on their own, but of course they don't, they don't go to the club on their own either. They don't go to the training grounds on their own. They invariably don't just eat on their own. Um, so um, there's a, uh, I've read some of your, your work um, in preparation for this, this conversation and you make a point, right at the beginning um, uh, of this uh, book chapter that we'll talk about a bit later that um, I, I'm aware that's not published yet. But you, you say something that I say all the time, which I use the phrase of you can, but should you? Um, yeah. And that is sort of an epistemological thing where, you know, you need to think about the cost to benefit, you know, the, 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 just because you can engage in an activity or tell someone to do something is that really what they should be doing um and to paraphrase you here you you've said that whilst it may be pragmatic to apply nutritional guidelines for adult athletes to young athletes it is not necessarily appropriate and i've adapted it by adding in the word necessarily so yeah. i mean i think this is an important point you know what is it what do you mean by that and why why is that basically the first thing that's written here? Yeah, so I guess what I'm getting at, and I sort of touched on it earlier, is you know if you take a 12 or a 13 year old child, let's say, um, it's not just a case of scaling it down for size compared to a, you know what what the guidelines are, are based on, you know, 70, 80 kilo adult athletes. Um, there are a number of different anthropometric changes, physiological changes, metabolic changes, which will which will influence then the nutritional requirements. So, you know, for example, we know that um, the children and, and as they come through adolescence, so the, the early stages of adolescence, they're, they're generally aerobic um, uh, beings. They, they don't really develop glycolytic um, capabilities until they come through that, that maturation process. You know, we, we know that they have greater reliance on exogenous carbohydrate when it's consumed. They, they don't have the ability to, to store glycogen in the same way or, or, or to the same quantities as adult athletes, even in relative terms. And, and there's big thermoregulatory differences between, between children and, and adult athletes. So again, that will influence some of the, the nutritional um, recommendations and guidelines as well. Yeah, that would explain why my, my kids, after caning sugary products, you know, become 
little hundred meter Olympic athletes. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, yeah, I, I, I like the way you say that. And, you know, recently, you know, in, in conversations about, about this, um, about different populations, you know, for example, we're, we're talking about female females or female athletes in this context aren't just little men. Um, yeah. There are profound differences between male and females, even if they are adults. And in the same way, I guess what you're saying here is that, that young athletes, youth athletes, they might be athletes, they might be male, but they're not little men, not literally um, in the physiological sense. Yeah, yeah, no, and you hit the nail on the head there. Yeah, so they're, they're not, uh, and as I said, it's it's those changes in, in yes, anthropometry, but that's just a scaled-down version, but I guess it's the physi- physiological changes and, and therefore and the, the metabolic changes that, you know, are the, the real true differences, defining differences between the, the populations. So, that, so therein lies a major problem then, doesn't it? When we start to apply what is generally taught um about sport and exercise nutrition strategies which are absolutely based on on adults uh, and again you know i i'm regularly talk about the difference between you know a, an athlete and an elite athlete you know they're not necessarily the same thing in fact invariably they're not and also yeah. that an elite athlete by elite i mean an olympic athlete or not just a Premier League football player necessarily, but you know, one of the top Premier League football players would 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 be an outlier as it relates to the rest of the data. So when we start doing these studies, you know, as you said, you know, these these generally people don't volunteer for these studies. Uh, so it is easier to get students. It is easier to get access to youth athletes. But even so, um, they're not necessarily for. For, for, for personal practical reasons or for ethical reasons, going to, you know, donate a leg for a biopsy or whatever. So there are all sorts of, of, of challenges there. Um, and as you quite rightly say, you know, there are some priorities here, which of course is the fact that they are still growing and developing as, as human beings. And that is going to be their, their prime focus. But that being said, you know, you're working in a, youth well you amongst other things are are looking after serious youth athletes they're not just you know um at school training for you know uh summer sports day they're not just looking at you know a football game at, at the weekend there's some serious stuff going on here and they absolutely want to be you know, um, achieving a, a place in that, in that first team at some point. Is it fair to say that there's going to be a different perspective there? Even these, even these kinds of athletes are not the same thing as youths generally, or is it maybe that's the wrong lens with which to look at these, these athletes because the priority still should be their growth and development? And is that something finally that there's maybe a tendency to abuse that fact because they're being perceived as more serious athletes and therein, therein lies some of the problems potentially for their health um, and development maybe. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think first and foremost, um, you, you have to still appreciate the population you're working with. So these these kids are, you know, they're coming from babies through to childhood. Now, I generally get them aged uh, or start start working with them, say, age 12. Now, the, the, the priority for these kids is to get them 
growing and, and to a mature state in a, in a healthy fashion. That has to be the priority. And then the, the, the sort of sport nutrition will come on top of that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just to contextualize as well, so the, the footballers that I work with, from 12 sort of up, they train four days a week. Uh, you know, that could be anywhere between, you know, 400 and 600 minutes of, of training a week. You know, they could do anywhere between 20 to 30 or even 35K in a high week. Um, so, you know, with a game, one or two games a week. So, you know, they're very different from, the, you know, Joe Public, normal kids that are, you know, just running around in the playground. But, uh, but, but as I said, I think you have to, you have to look at them as a child and a, and a, you know, to optimize that growth first and foremost before you actually start to to bring in sport nutrition per se. Yeah, and that I mean, clearly that's why we need to have people with not only the appropriate knowledge but also you know a, a, a complete acknowledgement, understanding, and respect for their scope of practice as it relates to this population. Uh, quite frankly, if you don't have the knowledge and you're not appropriately qualified or educated um, or, you know, a registered practitioner, that sort of thing, then this really should be a hands-off area. And yet I fear that's not what happens. Um, yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. I think with, with academy rules, you know, I think people, gen, and I, I was at a great conference at the weekend uh, in Gloucester, Child of Champion, and it was primarily a, a strength and conditioning conference. But there were some, you know, one of the things that really came across is, Practitioners, I think, in any in any field of sports science, you know, generally would look at looking at or working with youth athletes as sort of a stepping stone to the to the senior pathway. You know, I'll do the academy and then I'll go the first team kind of thing. You know, mm. get in, serve your time, and get up there. But you know, one thing that the, a lot of the practitioners agreed on, and and, and it was mainly strength and conditioning um, practitioners, but you know, you can be an expert in, in, in youth and you really do need to understand the population that you're working with in, in any sport and in, in any um, area of sports science. But, you know, yeah, I think the population and understanding the population and the, the, the science behind it should be the, the first port of call. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I joke when I say this, but my experience of working a lot with Premier League football players, adults, is they still manage to remain a lot of their childish <laughs> characteristics. But that's another story, as you well know. Um, so, okay, so you, you, you know, you've defined three sort of major factors then that need to be considered when working with young, young athletes, and you, you've already pointed these out. So we need to be bearing in mind their current maturity status and their rate of growth and maturation. Um, we also need to be um, taking into account their current physiological and metabolic capacities. And, and thirdly, um, you know, we obviously are trying to bear in mind um, their sport and exercise demands so that we can help support them. So let's just quickly go into those, those three areas. Uh, we sort of touched upon them, but maybe you could just elucidate a bit more um, with point one here, you know, what, what, what's, what's going on now? I'm not asking for a biology lesson here. Um, but a lot of us have, you know, knowledge and education in, in, um, you know, the, the, the growth and uh, development of say muscle tissue as it relates to muscle protein synthesis, or, you know, what happens when the body recovers or regenerates from, uh, an injury. But what we're talking about is the, 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 you know the, the the varying levels of maturity status and 
and um, you know the rate of growth and maturation. I mean, bearing in mind the range of ages, which in a you know in youth could be, you know, I mean there are well maybe you could tell us what what sort of ages are we talking about and 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 what are the significant things happening to these these kids, if you like, um, up to youths that we should be aware of, um, you know, that, that, that's going on. Yeah. So I guess, you know, when, when, when people look at ages of, of individuals, they generally look at the, the chronological age. So the number of years and days at a single time point, you are away from your date of birth. Um, now, and a lot of sports are grouped like that. So we have under 12s, under 13s, 14s age groups, if you like. However, we, we could have two, say, let's take a 14-year-old boy, for example. Um, so if we have two 14-year-old boys, they could be the exact same chronological age. However, their biological age could be very different. The bi- biological age and, and maturation refers to how far they are down the line towards the, the mature state, biologically mature state. Now, that can vary in, in terms of um, timing and tempo, uh, and those kind of things, and different bodily systems can mature at different rates. But for example, so if, as I said, if we have two boys of fourteen years of age, one could be sort of less mature than the other. So biologically, one boy might be say thirteen years of age and uh, less mature, and and one the other chap could be more biologically advanced. So he could actually be fifteen years from a from a biological maturity point of view. So. Even though those two boys are the, the same chronological age, there could be differences of you know two, even three, or, or maybe more um, years apart from a, from a biological point of view. Yes, yeah, my I mean you know those of us that are parents um, and you have start having children that you know that that are starting to get into schools and various other things. There's that issue of of when in the year were they born, um, okay. and you're either going to be going into a, a school year, a class year, um, you know, maturer than the rest because you're, you know, you're nearer the end of that spectrum than you are at the beginning, which of course has some issues for competitiveness, doesn't it? Um, um, which I, I think, well, that's another conversation in many regards, but, but uh, that is a, another factor there. Um, okay, so, so um, we know there's a, a huge amount of, variability amongst them considerably more so than 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 we would expect between say males or females in their 20s or or 30s perhaps um but what about their current physiological and metabolic capacities um you you know what i mean what, what partly how would they vary between each other but also how much of a difference is there between them and their adult counterparts that i think would be very interesting yeah, so so if if we could if we go back to let's forget about let's power chronological age. So let's start talking about these these adolescents in, in terms of biological age. So um, pre-pubertal children we know are are aerobic, and um, they're more aerobic dominant. So fat oxidation rates are higher, you know, compared to adults or or more mature children. Now as they progress through, um, as they become more biologically mature. Um, they will start to develop glycolytic capabilities. So they will they will start to, um, you know, be more c- carbohydrate uh, and have the capability of using more carbohydrate at, at higher exercise intensities and you know, 
start to produce lactate and those kind of things. So that develops sort of as they progress through that um, 13, 14, 15 years of age. Um, I guess the, the, the other one is sort of the thermoregulatory differences. Again, children and pr particularly pre-pubertal children, um, so, so less biologically mature, um, have a reduced uh, sweating capa capabilities. So they will, they will not dissipate heat um, through sweat. It'll be more through, um, con, you know, convection uh, and those kind of things. Um, so, so there are some of the differences, really, that that develop throughout the the adolescent years. Yeah, that's that's great. I mean, that's all. You know, this is already we really are talking about a very different uh, context, aren't we? Than than adults, quite clear. Um, and so, so then, tell us just a bit more about the sport and exercise demands. Then, um, you know, the the, the the, the, you know, are they are they independent? Are they interlinked? You know, um, what should we be bearing in mind with that? Well, yeah, I, I, well, I guess I mean, it's like, a, a, and it, these can probably be looked at in a similar fashion to to any sport in terms of sport nutrition, even with adults. You know, what are they doing? You know, um, what are they doing in terms of what's their training training demands? What's their competition demands? And um. And I guess yeah, they, they are interlinked, but you, you can you can look at them sort of independently also. Um, so you know the, the usual things that you would look at: type, duration, intensity of exercise, mode of exercise, energy cost, recovery periods. You know, within a training session, between training sessions. Yeah. Um, and and I guess the the other thing with children, um, it's not it's not sport demands, but it's sort of physical activity is, is, is a free play as well. Um, you know, kids go to school all day and, you know, I've been to the, to the schools that the, the, the lads I work with are at and you see them, you know, the younger ones, particularly 12, 11, 12, 13 years of age, they, they go crazy at lunch, lunchtime and, and break time. They're running around and playing with each other. And whereas the, the older ones are, are, are not as much. So, so this free play probably needs to be taken into the uh, equation also when it, when, it, when it comes to energy uh, demands. Um, uh, well, that was perfect um, segue there because what I want to talk about, I want to spend some time on is, is energy you know, balance, energy availability. Um, and I'm really pleased you mentioned that because, there, you know, again, we've got this habit of looking at people as adults who tend to be rather sedentary um, when they're not training um, or competing, whereas, like you say, kid, you know, you, you, any opportunity, even in the house, my kids run around the house, drives us nuts, um, <laughs> not just outside. So um, given the opportunity, they will free play and it's fantastic and it's marvelous and they learn, you know, lots of things from that, including teamwork and, you know, just their place in the world, which is awesome, but, but it does burn off extra energy. So let's get into energy availability because as we started off, we've made a, a particularly significant point here is that we're not just talking about um, little adults. We're not just talking about um, uh, athletes. They're human beings and they're growing and developing human beings. So they don't just need, from a nutritional perspective, um, nutritional recommendations to support their performance and recovery from training, uh, competition, whatever we want to do, you know, to enhance adaptations and all the stuff that we get excited about in uh, sports nutrition for adults. 
But the added complexity here, which I think we can convincingly argue is the prime focus, is their own growth and development and the various things that will impact their health and maturation in, in that regard. So can you take us through the concept of energy availability? And I think it would be worth just defining what does that term even mean? What, what, you know, we have gotten into this in other episodes, but this is something that really needs to be clear to everyone is, is what is energy availability and what does that even mean in the context of a youth athlete? And what are the things that you feel that we should, we should know about that? And what, what is the science, what is the science starting to tell us? Yeah, well, yeah, I think you're right. It needs to be defined. And energy availability for youth is, you know, it's the same. The definition's the same um, throughout. So, you know, I would define energy availability as the amount of energy left um, sort of for, for normal physiological functions and growth once, um, you know, the activity energy expenditure, so free play, sport has been taken away. Um, and once that has been taken away from the energy intake, um, so the, and that will that will give you an energy availability number. Now, as you said, I, and I wholeheartedly agree. I think energy availability and, and an appropriate energy availability is the first port of call for for a youth and, and a growing and developing athlete. You know, it it has to be sufficient to enable that growth um, to occur, uh, the growth and maturation, and then we start to look at the the other sport nutrition, you know, things down the line. Um, and so in terms of energies required, obviously, to synthesize new tissue um, and, and to, to grow new tissue, but there's also deposition of that energy into this new tissue as well. So, um, yeah, so, so that's probably the... the yeah, no, the no, you, you, you got, that, got that bang on. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's worth pointing out that relatively speaking, yeah. uh, young athletes have greater energy requirements than adults um so you know for reasons that i think are, are quite obvious now which is pretty mind-boggling when you think about it um it makes this 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 population particularly vulnerable to energy deficiency is that right and and what would the consequences be then just to really you know slap everyone in the face on this like what happens if they get this wrong what, what are the consequences yeah well, well let, let me just point out uh Laura, first a few of the a few examples of the energy expenditures of, yeah. of a number of different sports. So, you know, we know that the, the gold standard method of, of assessing um, total energy expenditure in, in free living conditions, I have to add, this is, um, is the doubly labeled water technique. So there's been a number of studies that have uh, used DLW uh, to assess total energy expenditure across a number of different sports. You know, in basketball, we know that expenditures can be up towards 5,000 kilocalories per day, you know, in, in, in adolescent athletes. Um, the, the group at Leeds, Beckett, uh, Debbie Smith and Nessan Costello have done some work in, in youth rugby players, both rugby union and rugby league. And again, we know that expenditures there are around 4,000 kilocalories per day. Um, in sort of 14, 15 year olds, I think they looked at. Wow. Um, yeah. And there was a great study done uh, a number of years ago in gymnastics. Now, these kids were in, in a boarding school and they were training around sort of four hours a day, but these 68 year olds spending 2000 kilocalories per day. So, you know, if you think to the size of a, of a six and a seven and an eight year old, you know, they're, they're tiny, you know, 
30 kilos maybe and they're expending 2,000 kilocalories per day so it's it's phenomenal um, some recent research that I've done we've looked at the the energy expenditures of uh, youth footballers so across three different age groups and our, our under 15s are expending around 3,000 kilocalories per day and our, our 18s up to around towards three and a half uh, thousand kilocalories per day with with one or two individuals up over five thousand kilocalories per day so they're just some of the examples of the, the high expenditures that these athletes would have uh, i guess moving on to your second point so what are the implications of of failing to match intake to expenditure now obviously relative energy deficiency in sport is is, is topical at the minute in in sport nutrition um, with a number of you know health and performance implications, but if we take if we first of all take the health implications um, for a youth athlete, I go I guess there's two real pertinent ones um, that are real applicable to to the growing and developing athlete. So first of all, if we look at bone health, so bone health here and now, so you know a failure to to lay down bone tissue and a, a reduced bone mineral density will have implications for potential injury risk, such as uh, stress responses, stress fractures, those kind of things. Um, but also uh, bone health, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years down the line. So if they're failing to to lay down as much bone tissue as they can, uh, peak bone mass will be reduced, and then that could have implications for things like osteoporosis, you know, down the line, um, long-term health. Uh, the other one would be, you know, failure again to to meet to meet to match sorry um intake to expenditure would be a, a stunting of growth you know there's there's less less um energy available and you know the athletes might be shorter or you know uh, maturation may be more delayed so i guess from a health point of view they're probably the two most um pertinent ones for youth athlete and then again we're aware of the number of different performance implications and and if we take you know, so sorry to keep coming back to football, but you know these players are playing for contracts. Yes, they're still twelve and thirteen years of age, but they actually you know sign contracts year in year out. And if their performance is, is impaired, you know that kind of implications for their career potentially. You know, despite them being 12, 13, 14 years of age. Yeah, it's it's yeah, and it can be pretty ruthless in terms of you know the the demands that are placed on these kids. Um, you know, by family, by friends, by themselves. Um, yeah. there's a, you know, I'm going to try and find some sports psychologists uh, to talk about this. I've had Professor Andy Lane on before. I think I might talk to him about this. But, but um, I just wanted to also mention because we're going to talk about um, um, you know, the macronutrients and micronutrients yeah. and so on. But as I repeat unashamedly throughout my podcast series you know we, we we in sports nutrition we're always talking about you know energy calories uh proteins carbohydrates and so on but we rarely talk about food um yeah. and with kids you know you you use the, the term free play when it comes to physical activity but loosely we, we need to have free play with food as well um yeah. children you know interact with food in, in many ways, in different ways than we do as humans. For them, it's a, a treat. It's a reward. Yes, we do that as adults, but that's because that's how we experience food as, as children. And if you, if, if you, if you, if you put a, a youth athlete on a really 
strict nutritional plan, um, the psychological consequences, you know, bearing in mind all the other psychological stress um, they're dealing with. And if we refer back to, you know, what um, experts such as Professor Neil Walsh will tell us about not just stress, but life stress, you know, not training stress, nutrition, but the whole, how everything all combines together, the implications that can have to the mental and physical development of that child, which I guess is why we, we bring it back to that initial statement of, of you can do these things, but it may not be appropriate. Um, you know, um, right. Okay. Let's, let's, let's just delve into, um, some areas. Then we've talked about energy availability. Um, the first sort of nutritional component that we want to talk about then would be, you, you know, the primary fuel for these athletes, which as you know, anybody working in sports science, exercise science, sports nutrition, we're, we're all now looking at, you know, substrate utilization and, you know, rates of glycogen depletion and, and so on. And you've already pointed out some of the physiological and, you know, um, energetic, you know, nuances of children and youth athletes. So glycogen depletion will be of particular relevance to, to these, these kids. Maybe you could just take us through, um, you know, what the information that we need to be aware of and, and what the research is, is starting to tell us as it relates to carbohydrate recommendations and and you know from from need to um you know uh, recommendation yeah well i, I guess uh, i'll I, I just go back quickly to energy i mean i get asked at a conference what's what's more important energy or macronutrients and i i think if you're if you're eating you know three four five thousand calories of of, of energy you know your, your macronutrients it's likely that you'll be hitting macronutrient targets, you know, yeah. or recommendations as it is. Um, I, I guess, yeah, if we start off with carbohydrate, you know, um, as I said earlier, there was some great work done in the 70s looking at uh, glycogen utilization and, and storage and those kind of things. But, you know, they, they were done, you know, 50, 50 odd years ago now and it probably won't be repeated, those studies. Again, the difficulty in assessing you know, endogenous muscle glycogen and storage, you know, it's difficult to do. And I don't think there's been anything developed as, as of yet um, to, to assess that. So, it, it, you know, it's difficult um, to to really know what, what's being utilized in, in different youth athletes for different sports. Um, I guess if we look at the um, absorption and oxidation, we know that it's fairly similar Um from youth and adult athletes around a gram of carbs per minute, you know, if we're looking at just um, glucose. So, yeah, I guess, you know, despite the, the differences in physiology, I guess carbohydrate recommendations aren't that dissimilar to, to adult athletes. Yeah, so, you know, the, so really what you're, yeah, so what you're saying is we should be less concerned with the, you know, what differentiates an, an adult from a youth, for example, as it relates to glycogen depletion rates and substrate utilization and, and so on, but more, you know, to the overall energy needs of the youth athlete. Is that, is that what you're saying? 
yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. So I mean, earlier, earlier in the the, the maturation process of twelve, thirteen, they are more aerobic, and, and there is a greater reliance on exogenous. So I guess you know things like sports drinks, and, you know, could be used there because they don't have uh, as much endogenous stores of glycogen. And again, that probably goes against the grain of, you know, the, the health messages. And that can be often difficult. The, the conversation around that can be difficult with uh, parents and things. Also, you're saying, oh, he should be having sports drinks. And, you know, they're getting messages from the, the, the mainstream media, you know, sports drinks are the devil and those kind of things. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess, yeah, from my point of view, use sports drinks. But I think there has to be an education piece around that with both the parent and the adult. Um, around appropriate use of them. You know, what's, I, as I said, I've worked with a fair amount of, of youth athletes and uh, what the irony is, because they're trying to, like you say, compete for contracts, they're really serious. Or those that aren't, but they do, you know, they, they want to get their um, opportunities to be sponsored into a college or a university or, or whatever, um they they tend to take this stuff very seriously so again they're looking to you know advice and information out that exists out there and you know there's we know there's loads of scienciness and pseudoscience and so on that exists out there but of course what they're forgetting is that these 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 youths are more active relatively speaking and their requirements are greater and and you know anyone that hasn't actually tried to you know, contextualize what four, five, six thousand calories actually looks like. I mean, it's particularly yeah. frightening when you're talking about someone who's not necessarily six foot tall. Yeah. <laughs> um, so perhaps we, you know, I think the most important thing, at least from my perspective, is is let's get the energy in, um, primarily from quotes unquote healthy sources, but let's be slightly less concerned with you know, uh, where, where the treats come from, shall we say? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> and you, you mentioned it just previously, Lauren, these are still kids at the end of the day. Mm. So, you know, but they don't live, they live normal kids' lives, but they, they are still kids. So, you know, they will still want to eat sweets and eat junk food, if you like, and, and you know, ice cream and stuff. Is that such a bad thing? I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure it is. You know, I, I think if as long as they're getting the basis of their diet right and you know they're getting you know generally good quality foods and you know appropriate quantities you know if they have a tub of ice cream to to increase calorie intake is that the end of the world I don't think so at all you know yeah no I uh, um you know I've had I've had discussions with sports dietitians before um, and and I think that's where where the not disagreements but they they've come from a clinical and and healthy sort of that clinical mindset and I've sort of come from the other path and from sports science and nutrition. And I think, um, you have to be real. They are still kids, you know, let them, let them have, you know, uh, things like ice cream and, you know, high energy dense foods. If, if the rest of the diet is, is, is you know, is there, thereabouts. Well, yeah, of course. And they, look, I mean the difference in physical activities between an average youth and a youth athlete is astronomical. Um, you know, I've talked to previous guests uh, like uh, Michael Joyner and Steve Phillips. You know, we talked about outrunning a bad diet um, yeah. four or five podcasts ago. You know, the, the 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 protective, you know, effect of being physically active is um, is awesome. Um, so, 
okay so let, let's move on from there um an area that well um i you know there's going to be plenty of carbohydrates on their plate one way or the other so i think carbohydrates is less of a, a concern an area that can be a concern is fat um because again when they're trying to be athletes they may try and avoid fat rightly or wrongly um so you know what are the thoughts about fat and where i'm going with this is not so much about performance but but more to do with the health aspects of of fat and how that relates to their growth and maturation yeah so i guess you know fat is fat's one of those ones that's slightly different in it compared to you know protein or or carbohydrate in the sport nutrition literature it's of course, carbs and protein are generally, you know, grams per kilogram. Fat is the fat sort of recommendation. There's still a percentage of of you know total calorie intake, energy intake. So, you know, recommendations are 35 percent, I think, um, a percentage as opposed to grams per kilo. Um, yeah, fat's important. Uh, uh, like for youth athletes, as it is for for adult athletes, and again, the, the sources from which they get those fats are, are, are important also you know we we encourage them to you know food, uh, high fat foods and omega-3 omega-6 you know oily fish nuts oils seeds those kind of things just the, the usual so i think from a fat point of view it, it it doesn't really change but what i would say is fat you know is obviously biggest bang for your buck from a from a calorie point of view yeah and um, so yeah the consequence there of course is if you're going low fat, even if you think that's being healthy, then, low calorie. yeah, and the risk of not matching their energy requirements is a, a increases, doesn't it? Because they might start looking at, my God, I've got to eat an entire loaf of bread here. And the parents yeah. are going to be going, oh, no, no, that's too much. That's too much. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but also, of course, with fat, is the necessity of fat in the diet to be able to um, make use of vitamins A, D, E, and K from a sort of digestion absorption perspective, which of course is not just important for immune function and metabolism, but very much for growth and development. Um, so, right. So the bit, the one I wanted to spend a bit of time here on next then is. Um, you know, obviously everyone listening is going, well, obviously protein's going to be next. Protein's an interesting one because we're, we're obsessed with protein in sport and exercise, you know, nutrition. Uh, you think of terms like growth and development. Let's get this athlete bigger and stronger. Let's feed up that, that youth athlete. And then the other camp are going to be going, no, you know, we don't want protein. We don't want to overdo the protein. You know, it's bad for their kidneys and it'll turn to fat or you know, protein supplements, you know, I've definitely seen scenarios where protein has been recommended, uh, like in, in academy, uh, rugby settings that I've been involved in, you know, we're talking some big lads, uh, nonetheless, they might be 15, 16, they're still huge. Um, but the parents would be like, absolutely no, we're not doing, you know, protein supplements and so on. So what, you know, where does protein fit on this? Um, and uh, what are your thoughts as that relates to youth athletes? And feel free to contextualize to football as well. Yeah, so you're, you're right. People have this, you know, protein, uh, growth, development, get bigger, muscle hypertrophy, those kind of things. But, you know, protein, 
um, has has loads more functions that extend beyond just just building muscle and, and getting bigger muscles and, and growth those kind of things so for enzymes so enzymes and you know of which there's thousands in, in the body so as as a as a, a youth athlete gets bigger yes there's the growth side of things for the from a muscle point of view but there's also the the increase in, in enzymes and those kind of things so yeah protein is is vital and it's very important yeah, um, food first food first would be the approach though i'm, I'm assuming yeah but but um if we look at it you know recommendations probably you know anywhere between not too dissimilar from adults you know some nitrogen balance studies of 1.4 1.6 anywhere up to two grams per kilo sort of i would re- recommend for for youth athletes and if you look at then the weight of the youth athlete you know they're generally from i don't know 12 what could they be 40 45 kilos you know up to an 18 and, and almost adult you know depending on rugby football 100 kilos look you can eat 200 grams of, of protein from, from a food, from food sources without having to hit supplements. And now the case is the same in, in adult athletes and it's more of a convenience thing, I think, than anything. But yeah, I mean, we, we, we try to promote a food first uh, approach. Um, and, and, I, and I guess the, the one time in the day is generally breakfast with the youth athletes. They, you know, the younger ones in particular would, would have, you know, carbohydrate rich breakfast cereals toast those kind of things so a lot of my education would be you know around appropriate breakfast to have and how you can include more protein rich sources there um so yeah but but it's as you said it's definitely achievable through through food sources alone well and of course we you know we talked about earlier you know treats um and um how we shouldn't be denying them that and of course this is the perfect scenario where <clears> certain <throat> sugary protein rich treats um can be extremely um useful in this scenario and still be a real high you know high valued treat by by the youth athletes and children um and i'm thinking you know milkshakes for example chocolate milks you know kids love that stuff and of course this is a particularly good scenario where they would absolutely have a place a place in the diet is that something you'd agree with and you know, what, what would be some of the scenarios that you think that, that maybe those types of foods, stroke functional treats, if you like, could, could come into use? I was actually waiting. I was wondering what you were going to say. <laughs> I, I was thinking down the, the line of milkshakes. So it's funny. We, we, we use milkshakes a lot, um, or, or I do anyway in my practice. So when, when our uh, lads come in from, they get picked up from school around two o'clock. They've had lunch about half twelve. Two o'clock, they arrive at the training ground half two, quarter three, and then they're out to train. So, what we introduced uh, a couple of years ago was uh, a little flavoured milkshake um, and a flapjack bar for them to eat um, as they're getting changed. Quick, light, but it, it's got a, a decent amount of um, energy and a, and a decent macronutrient profile in that snack. Doesn't sit too heavy in the stomach, and they go out and train straight away. Now, they'll go out and train, 90 minutes, bit of gym, that kind of thing. So a couple of hours training, and then they'll come back in, and we will feed them a, a meal, a proper meal. Now, nice. one, one of the things yeah. that I always ensure is on the table is um, flavored milk. So we use a lot of Crusher, which is yeah. a milk flavoring. Yeah. Uh, and I, at the canteen in the evening, I it's make like sure Nesquik. that Nesquik, Crusher, any sort of milk flavoring, yeah. um, whole milk, Crusher, or Nesquake, those kind of things, and make sure it's on the middle of the table with cups and the lads absolutely hammered. Yeah. Um, so again, you're getting calories, you get protein, but you're also getting 
you know, calcium, which is another very, very important micronutrient or, or mineral for youth athletes. And, and of course, it's a valuable um, form of uh, rehydration or prehydration, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's a real win-win, I think. Uh, again, too often, and we'll talk about this in a bit, but too often there's a, a focus on let's, come, let, let's give them some super-duper fancy commercial you know, recovery drink or pre-workout yeah. drink or, or hydration drink, but actually they're no better really than, than these examples we've just discussed. Good old-fashioned milk, eh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, also from the sort of healthy uh, attitudes and behavior and relationship with food, those are, you know, those, those fit very well into that. They're a, they're a win-win on many levels. Um, yeah. Whereas I think once we start using specialized products, it's, it's like giving them a treatment um, as opposed to, you know, a, a, a treat or some real, some real food when the reality, as I said, is there really isn't much. In fact, the real, the real food, so to speak, um, the, 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 from whole food sources uh, has actually more nutrition in it, generally speaking. So, um, right. So look, we've, we've, we've referenced micronutrients, you know, is there anything special, you know, they're growing, they're developing, surely they need more micronutrients or hang on, maybe that's not, the case where are we at with micronutrient considerations for for youth so you know yeah you're right um micronutrients are also vitally important for 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 youth athletes as they are an adult some of the differences are, are just to do with size um in some of the micronutrients but i guess let, let's point out a few of the real important ones for youth athletes so um if we start off with calcium there's obviously large increases in in skeletal size and, and mass. Um, so obviously calcium is being put into bone tissue. Um, so, so actually calcium is probably the one nutrient where, or sorry, micronutrient should I say, where uh, youth athletes have a higher requirement than, than adult athletes. And actually in, in the UK, the, the, the guidelines for sort of 15 to 18 year olds are around 1,000 milligrams per day. Now they're actually lower than uh, the, the Australian and the US guidelines of, of 1300 milligrams a day um, but yeah so, so calcium is obviously very important for, for bone formation and, and strength um, and again we, we, I've, I've mentioned how, how I use uh, milk as a, as a great way of getting in but again you know your, your normal dairy sources um, alongside calcium obviously vitamin D is required so um Again, we, we, we test all our players um, throughout the season to see where they're at in terms of their, their vitamin D status. And then we prescribe vitamin D supplementation from, from 12 years up. Um, it's the one supplement we will give to our, our, our children, really, um, yeah. because, because of uh, the obvious implications uh, without, without having a, an appropriate status. Sure, and you've tested it anyway. So, I mean, that's a pretty clear... Yeah, so we, we test it. We take a finger prick, finger prick blood sample just coming into the winter and off the back of the winter as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and, and again, uh, what about iron then? So, because iron is, you know, uh, clearly of interest. Maybe with youths, we're not necessarily talking about, uh, and again, we, I guess we could be accused of being possibly talking about males a lot here. Um, yeah. but we're not necessarily females. And when we talk about females and I'm thinking about, you know, some of the, 
the work and conversations I've had on these podcasts with people like Kirsty Elliott Sell, for example, although that's been more down the path of relative energy deficiency syndrome, but we have also talked about the implications for the menstruating athlete, um, all those taking um, contraceptive pills and so on. Okay, we're not necessarily seeing that in our youth athletes, but when it comes to iron, you know, what, are there any thoughts firstly for males and or, or female youth athletes regarding iron that we're aware of? Or generally, is it something that they need more of or we need to be more careful with? Yeah, yeah. So you're right. Again, this is probably the one example of where male and female um, athletes or, or you know normal population differ in terms of iron requirements. Um, sort of at the onset of menstruation for for a female, you know, iron um, iron requirements are increased due to due to iron losses in the blood. So um, yeah, so up towards fifteen milligrams per day in in, in youth. Uh, female athletes, whereas it's slightly lower, around eleven milligrams per day in in, in boys. So, um, yeah, and, and that, as I say, that's just due to to blood losses um, throughout throughout the month. Yeah. Okay. Right now, um, earlier you mentioned a few times about thermoregulation, and there are some issues that we need to be particularly aware of with regards to youth athletes and uh, um, thermoregulation not necessarily being that of um, an adult athlete. Um, and, then, and then what would the um, fluid recommendations therefore be as it relates to that situation? Yeah, so, so children have a reduced sweat, uh, sweating capabilities. So they, they lose their, um, their heat through conduction convection radiation. They're the main differences, and, and as I say, as they progress through that adolescent phase, they they develop sweating um, capabilities. So, um, that has to be uh, considered. Children also have a larger um, surface area to to body mass ratio, so again, can can heat up um, to a greater extent than adult athletes. So, I guess sort of in the UK, it's it's not a huge issue or worry, but. You know, heat illness in places like America, in certain places like America and Australia and those kind of things, they really have to be considered when working with the, the youth population. Well, this um, past week here in the UK, mate. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. 38 degrees last week. Yeah, so um, again, definitely an awareness has to be had of that. You know, from a from the actual requirements, um, sort of hydration requirements point of view, you know, we also know that you know children aren't very good at drinking just water. There's quite a lot of research on uh, the differences in, in, in voluntary intake of, of water versus you know a flavored drink, you know a squash or, or something like that. And you know it, it's it's well shown that the children will drink more of, of flavored drinks. So again, putting flavoring in drinks isn't a bad thing. Um, again, I would encourage practitioners to to do that. Yeah, and we, we should be worrying less about the implications of, of weight gain due to the onboarding of extra fluid relative to not having enough, shouldn't we? So yeah, whatever it, yeah. you know, and maybe also the, let's be slightly less concerned if that sports drink is a little less, it may, okay, it might have some sugar in it, but at least they'll drink it um, yeah, in hot weather, yeah. Um, and again, I um, suppose that 
move back to the performance implications, you know, dehydration, two, three percent, similar to, to the research in adult athletes, you know, performance decrements sort of showing at, at, at minus two and three percent of, of body mass. So, so how do we measure that in, in kids, is, in youth athletes? Is that going to be the same way we would with, with, with adults? Um, yeah. uh, in terms of how do we, how do we measure Well, how are we pers- going to assess hydration, you know, particularly in a team setting? You can't keep your eye on every single player individually. Um, what, what sort of approaches would you have to, to monitor um, hydration status in a in a group of youth athletes. Well, I mean, what? How do you do it? For example, at, at Everton. So, at certain age groups, so the older age groups, we would uh, uh, monitor, you know, urine osmo on a on a daily basis, or sort of as and when we feel appropriate. Again, as you say, with large numbers, so we, we wouldn't do that across the academies because you know we could have a hundred lads training at one time. Yeah. Um, one thing we've done before is, you know, just a simple weigh in, weigh out. So before they, before they go out to train, weigh them. But again, that has to be pretty standardised. You know, you know, just shorts, for example, they can't be wearing all the extras, and that they, they could hold on to water. And then when they come back in, you could weigh them again and just see any body mass changes and, and taking into account any any volume of liquid drunk as well. So that's probably the quickest and easiest way to assess that but as i say to get accurate information you really have to be quite stringent and on the way you're you're measuring body mass yeah and i i find in my my experience of doing this the the downside may be less accuracy but the in my opinion the superior upside is you're helping enforce habits and behaviors which ultimately will will develop those you know those daily habits much more effectively than simply writing down in a set of guidelines or on a on a notice board drink more water the fact that you're 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 having them weigh or do urine tests they do they they do tend to you know improve their habits as a result of that well it's 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 individual to them in that regard so yeah it's not generic you know you have lost uh 1.5 kilos you need to do x y and z yeah. so it's individual to them and I think with anything uh, in terms of, of feedback, when it's individual to the athlete, it's it's generally taken on board um, better than, than generic team recommendations. Yeah, I think it goes for anyone, doesn't it? When they have a, a clearer understanding as to why, and let's develop that to why me, um, when, when you answer the why me because it's relevant to you, then they definitely take that on board, don't they? And, 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 and that's the buy-in. That's the belief. That's the that's the the tick that you know the button that needed to be pressed really with these sorts of things. Um, right. Let's move on to supplements then, Marcus. So uh, yeah. this is pretty controversial anyway. Um, do we need supplements? How relevant are supplements? We've used phrases like food first, but there is a place, an evidence based supplement that's used in the right situation for the right reasons might have some value, but you know, where are we at with supplements um, and the youth youth athlete? Are there any that, that stand out? Are there any major concerns that you have? What would your view on this be? Yeah, so I'll, I'll start off, Lauren, with, you know, a, a phrase or, or uh, you know, I often hear practitioners working with youth athletes and, and going, their organization has a no supplement policy under the age of 18. Now, 
that's quite commonplace across a number of sports in in the UK and also worldwide. I I agree to that in the in the terms of you're, you're trying to promote uh, a food first approach and and show the athletes that there's food alternatives to to everything. Now there's a number of cases for for youth athletes now. Where one case that I think it's actually negligent not to give them a supplement, uh, and, and I, I mentioned it earlier, it's vitamin D. Yeah, great. Uh, so you know it's well known that uh, any sort of individual living in the UK or uh, you know um, certain places in the world, not just the UK, with a certain latitude. Uh, will be vitamin D deficient at certain times in the year, so through, through the winter months. Now, if they're deficient and in vitamin D, they're, that's going to impair their ability to lay down bone mass and amongst another number of things. So we, we vitamin D supplement um, from under 12 up, but as I said earlier, we test. So we will test every player, fingerprint blood sample. We will see their level or their, their status of vitamin D in the blood and, and then we will prescribe a vitamin D according to um, their, their vitamin D status. So, so that's one example of, of um, a supplement that we would use uh, and I would use in, in sort of every sport really. So, yeah, and, you know, look, there's some great decision-making charts that exist. Um, perhaps it would be nice to have one that's specific for youth athletes but we have one at Senna I've created my own simplified version which people can see on my own social media which maybe I'll link to this which I think is quite relevant but but at the yeah. end of the day I think I think you've made it quite clear you know that again it's one of those it depends scenarios but that really does need to involve a a appropriately qualified individual to determine the relevance of that um, absolutely absolutely yeah. And again, I guess the other, just coming back to supplements again, you know, 14, 15 year old, 16 year old kids there, or even at 12, you know, they're all on social media now. There's, there's a lot of supplement and the sport nutrition and sport nutrition supplement industry is massive now. They, they see it and oh, this will make you massive. And so they're, again, I think it was negligent not to give them some information on the supplements and have an awareness of sort of. Uh, risks associated with certain supplements so we do supplement awareness uh, you know from a safety point of view from 15 and um, even though they're not uh, liable for testing till sort of under eight, 17 18 in soccer anyway football um, we still educate them around you know water and the risk of cross-contamination and, and those kind of things so you again came up with a perfect segue to the final sort of main point of conversation that I wanted to get into, which is the whole sort of education communication aspect to this, you know, it's all very well having all the science um, is, you know, we need to be able to translate that, but youths are not necessarily that interested in this. Uh, a lot of adult athletes um, to clean football, I've noticed aren't necessarily that interested until they, you know, understand that it's important for them and how it might impact them and, you know, the why, what's in it for me type, you know, perspective. With yeah. kids, that gets a bit more complicated. And, and like you say, um, they're on social media now. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of heroes out there. There's a lot of people, you know, they don't have the bullshit filter that, that we hopefully have as adults, particularly as trained scientists and practitioners. And this is, you know, there's a huge concern about 
about the risks that there are for these these youths having access to this enormous amount of information and you know they they will they will be very impressionable at that age um because you're working specifically in a field where there are huge amounts of of pressures but also uh social sort of media influences um you know that will play a role in this you know what are what are the ways in which you have managed to deal with that and how do you i mean how do you approach that like for example in a in an academy setting i i know in my own well, with with twenty year old players, it's been pretty difficult thing to deal with. But I can only imagine that this is far more complicated with youth athletes. Um, maybe you could share some of that with us. Yeah, it's an issue across, you know, sports in general and, and athletes in general, from from youth all the way up to adults, because you know they they they're, they can be influenced by people, and and they obviously influence people as well. So people do offer money and those kind of things to promote products and supplements and and all sorts of things. So it's a massive issue. Um, I guess we we you know, and that's where it, it's beneficial on having a full time practitioner within a club. You know, to be there day in day out because a you build the relationships with the individuals and they they're likely to talk to you then and rather than you coming in once a week and oh, who's this guy that comes in once a week. Um, so you have the relationship there. And then, you know, once you have that relationship there, they go, Oh, I've seen this. I've heard of this. And these are just conversations you hear around the gym or you, you hear around the changing rooms or in the canteen, you know, and you can be there to nip it in the bud. Oh, this does, you can give an explanation or, or a risk associated with that. And, and I guess part of it as well is, I do. Uh, I have an education pathway that that all our players go through from from twelve, and it gets layered and built upon year on year. But that education is formal and informal, um, so I try to hopefully give the right messages and appropriate information across to them. And you know, yes, they mightn't have the bullshit detector on them, but hopefully they will be getting some of the right information. And my presence will hopefully, uh, or any practitioner's presence will hopefully steer them clear of you know yeah. certain products and, and those kind of things and i guess the second part and, and i mentioned it earlier as well is the parents are, are vital in this process you know the parents are the parents are buying the food deciding what's cooked they're preparing the food uh, so educating the parents around good nutrition um practices and and also supplements and the risks with them and, and those kind of things are is vitally important also yeah, I mean, I, unfortunately, we just don't have the time to get into that side of things. That in itself is, is going to be a podcast uh, down the road, actually. Um, I've got a few that will be looking at that as it relates to different types of athlete and different scenarios. Um, but, uh, you know, just briefly coming back to that, that, you know, we talk about influencers in social media. Well, with athletes, you know, the, the coach is an influence, the practitioners are an influence, the parents have an influence. And if you're lucky enough, as you are, and as I have to be working in, you know, in, in professional teams where there are going to be influences um, in the club. Um, and you can, I have always managed to find one or two of the first team players, for example, uh, who, yep. who will happily come in and have a chat you know, in front of the, the, the academy players um, and, you know, where they can help enforce this and help, you know, help with that. The influences are, 
are nearer than you think at, at times. But when we're talking about, you know, nutritional education and changing people's habits and behaviors, things like trust and buy-in are, are paramount. And if you're the type of practitioner that sits in the corner and doesn't actually talk and communicate to people, or you just stick up your charts and, you know, your plates and your recommendations on nice little infographics on the notice board, you're not going to get the buy-in. It's got to be human to human stuff. Um, you know, on that, on that point then, you know, I, I mean, what, what, just to, just to sum up then, what, what are going to be, so from a, so from a science to practice, let's keep this science to practice. So to sum up from a scientific perspective, what are the key sort of take home issues then? And then from a practice perspective, what are the key, the key practical things that we need to be aware of if you could look at this from a sort of a summing up perspective um yeah well i, I guess first of all it's, it's having an appreciation of the population and uh, the differences uh, that go alongside growth and, and maturation and how you measure them and assess them from from an actual nutrition scientific point of view i think start with your energy uh, availability and, and making sure there's an appropriate energy availability um, and then fitting your, your macronutrients within that um, and I guess, I guess from, from a practical point of view, sort of it's understanding your population there, developing a, a, as children into adults. So it's having that appreciation as well. And you probably have, got, have a bigger role with their relationship with food and, and things like that as well. So um, it, it's having an appreciation with all those things. And, and something you touched um, on at the end, it's, you know, these are kids and the way you interact with them and, and have relationships and, and build relationships with kids even at different stages. So um, it, it is important as well. Yeah. And, and just please be aware of the limitations of your knowledge. And if you, if you really don't know enough about this, you know, refer to someone who does this, this is pretty serious stuff when you start messing with people's growth and development, you know, sports nutrition is not a one size fits all thing. It, it requires huge amounts of, contextualization and adaptation by people that you know that know what they're doing i mean just from this conversation alone you can see just how how in-depth and nuanced it is um listen that was that was really really awesome i really appreciate your time and and your effort i'm looking forward to having you back at some point where we can you know look at uh, this in uh, more detail in certain areas there's always areas that we could have gotten into more we've you know been talking for over an hour so just shows you um if you know I'll, I'll put some references to the various papers and so on that you've written and or involved in or would recommend so we'll add that to the show notes um cool. if people want to follow you on social media uh do you have a website what, what would be the key key ways of people connecting with you marcus uh, no, no website like yourself, Lauren. No, unfortunately, not yet. Um, uh, Twitter, I suppose, is, is what I would use um, at Marcus Hannon ninety two. Uh, and if anyone wants to, to drop me an email, they can they can drop me an email m dot p dot Hannon at twenty fifteen lgmu dot ac dot uk. And, and again, I'm, I'm more than happy to have a chat or conversation with anyone. Um, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, well, um, yeah, be careful what you ask for there. <laughs> There's a lot of people listening. Um, I, um, I'll put all those contacts onto the, onto the show notes. So uh, uh, thank you so much. Um, so that, of course, brings us to the end of this, this fascinating conversation uh, with, with Marcus there. 
Um, there's loads of other podcasts uh, in, this, um, in this series, which you can find at guruperformance.com. Or we now have our own uh, website for this specifically, which is wedoscience.com. Um, and there's a rather basic uh, website there currently, but it's about to be enhanced. But you can search all of the episodes, uh, find um, all sorts of stuff in there, download specific episodes. Um, and there will be a We Do Science blog and vlog, um, which is going to be added to this podcast series. So it'll all be found at wedoscience.com. If you're looking for further advanced training and education, particularly in how to apply all this into practice, then check out what we do at guruperformance.com. I, of course, am Laurel Banner. can look forward to bringing another episode back to you guys very soon. Take care, everyone.